Open your Bibles to Proverbs 6. We are glad that you have come to worship with us this day. In Proverbs 6, we're going to begin reading today with verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, is one who walks with a false mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart devises evil continually, who spreads strife. Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly, he will be broken, and there will be no healing. There are six things which the Lord hates, Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. And feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. And one who spreads strife among brothers. This is a numerical proverb. We have several in Amos 1 and 2. We have some in Proverbs 30. You do not parallel numbers. The closest thing to paralleling numbers is to give the next highest number. And so you see this numerical construction in verse 16. There's six things the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination to him. The language is extremely strong. Extremely strong. The Lord hates. It is an abomination to the Lord. The word abomination has as its root the word abhor. These are things the Lord hates. These are things that are an abomination to God. Now, I want you to see that the list in verses 16 through 19 ties with verses 12 through 15. We'll show that in just a moment. You'll see contextually how this is bound together. It is often said, God hates sin and God loves the sinner. Is that true? Well, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 says the whole world lies 
in the power of the evil one. The whole world, 1 John 5, verse 19. Yet 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, tells us Christ is a propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. So, yes, it is true that God hates sin and God loves the sinner. But it is also true that God hates sin and hates the sinner. And by that I mean his wrath is poured out not just on sin generally, but on the sinner specifically, upon the one who is doing wrong. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 29, beginning with verse 18. So there will not be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve other gods of these nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit or wormwood. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he shall boast, saying, I have no peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. I, excuse me. I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord will never forgive, never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man. Every curse that is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven." The reason I read that text is you see God's wrath poured out against the one who says, I'm living in rebellion to God and I'm still blessed. And the text tells us God will pour out his wrath against him. The statement that he will never be forgiven, there would have to be more development of that idea in context. But one thing it shows that he's unrepentant. He is unrepentant. Yes, God loves, God hates sin and loves the sinner. And God hates sin and hates the sinner. In Psalm 5 verse 5, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. In Psalm 11 verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Psalm 5, 5, Psalm 11, and verse 5. Now, obviously, everything that makes a list like this, six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him, everything that makes the list is serious. And as I stated a moment ago, the context is linked with verses 12 through 15. The Bible talks in verse 12 of one who walks with a false mouth. And in verse 17, one who has a lying tongue. And then in verse 19, a false witness who utters 
lives. In verse 13, the text talks about one who winks with his eyes. And then in verse 17, the text talks about haughty eyes. In verse 14, one who with perversity in his heart devises evil. And then in verse 18, a false, a heart that devises wicked plans and feet that run rapidly to evil. And then in verse 14, who with perversity in his heart devises evil continually, who spreads strife. And in verse 19, the one, the sinner, who spreads strife among brothers is the object of God's wrath. Every sin in this numeric proverb is serious. But if there is an emphasis in this context, it is on the last sin of spreading strife among brothers. And it is said to be a sin which the Lord hates. And the one involved in it is subject to the wrath of God. Proverbs 22 verse 10 says, drive out the scoffer. Drive out the scoffer. And contention will go out, even strife and dishonor will cease. Problems are caused more by people than issues. Drive out the scoffer and contention will go out and strife will cease. The reason why God views this sin so seriously is because God values unity so greatly. In Psalm 33, Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 133, Psalm 133, and I appreciate Craig mentioning our Psalm class, which will be on Psalm 88, Lord willing, on Tuesday night. In Psalm 133, one of these songs of ascent, very brief, behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now, an illustration I heard growing up, which was valid then, it is valid now, though I am adopting a little bit of it. There are things in life that are good that are not particularly pleasant. I have always viewed even though I eat much of it and don't mean to, mean to offend those who've already served it to me, I have always viewed broccoli that way. Behold how good it is. There are things that are pleasant that are not particularly good, and cherry cobbler would be an illustration of that. But there are some things, and unity is one. Unity, when brothers dwell together, is both good and pleasant. It is good, and it is good for us. God values unity so highly 
that it is a profound sin to spread strife among brothers. Look in John 17 and Jesus' prayer. John 17, in verse 20 and 21, Jesus prayed, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus said, I ask for those who believe in me through their word, through the word of these servants of mine, through the word of my apostles. This unity that is going to come is because believers have come through the word. They have listened to the word. They have been pricked in their heart. Verse 17 of this prayer, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. Remember the passage in Acts 17? Those of Berea were more noble than those of Thessalonica, for they received the word with all readiness of mind, and they searched the scriptures daily to see if the things they were being taught were so. The next passage, the first word of the New American Standard is therefore. That word is omitted in the New International Version. Not saying to get rid of the New International Version, but a problem is it often connects, it often does away with connecting words, which sometimes make, which they say makes for a smoother reading. But that therefore is in the text, is in the Greek text. And there is a connection between them searching the Scriptures daily and them coming to faith in Christ, in Acts 17, verses 11 and 12, which is not as clear in the New International. The Bible tells us, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for all who believe in me through their word. And the prayer was that they may be one. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us. Our unity is grounded in the unity of the Father and the Son. And the unity that exists between believers through the Word imitating God and his son in their unity leads to evangelism so that all the world may know that you have sent me in verse 17 or verse excuse me verse 21 the unity of believers is a testimony to the world so unity is valued it is good and pleasant in psalm 133 Jesus prays for that in John 17, in the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament. And the Bible, the New Testament, 
has the same emphasis on the danger of sowing discord and spreading strife. The New Testament has the same emphasis as we saw in Proverbs chapter 6. Look at Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. Now, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Jesus, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Cause dissensions. This word dissensions is used... In Galatians 5, verse 20, it is listed there as a work of the flesh, right along with sexual sins and idolatry. Those who cause dissensions, it's a work of the flesh. Here, the Bible says, keep your eye on those who cause them, who cause hindrances contrary to the teaching. The word translated hindrances is translated back in chapter 14, verse 13, obstacles. When it says, therefore, let us judge, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. You don't eat meat before the brother who thinks it's wrong to eat meat. Don't put an obstacle in his way. These people who are warned against are actually putting obstacles in the way of other believers. Doesn't mean necessarily violating Romans 14, 13. But it's the same word that gives you an idea of the meaning. They cause dissensions. They cause hindrances. Contrary to the teaching that you have learned. The word teaching is a word used in Romans 6 verse 17. About you've obeyed from the heart the form of teaching that was delivered to you. The teaching that had been delivered to these disciples is the gospel, the New Testament. I recognize that Romans wasn't the last epistle written in the New Testament. And they didn't have a full New Testament as we are blessed to have. Extremely blessed to have. But the teaching had all been done and they had heard it. All this teaching that is later recorded in the New Testament. And the Bible says... Don't depart or they turn away from the teaching which you learned. Remember how Paul said in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him who called you from the grace of Christ to another gospel. And there are some who are disturbing you and who bring another gospel, but it's not another. But if we 
Or an angel from heaven preach to you a gospel contrary to what you have heard. Let him be a curse. Again, strong language. Strong language for one who would act contrary to the teaching and cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching. And the Bible says, turn away from them. This word for turn away is the word used in the Septuagint of Proverbs when the Bible warns young people in Proverbs 1.15 to stay away from evil companionship who will get you into trouble. It's also used that way in Proverbs 4 verses 14 and 15. The point is, just as young people are called, don't run with the wrong group. Don't surround yourselves with people who are leading you into sin. Paul is telling Christians this in Rome. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. Contrary to the teaching which you have learned... And turn away from them. For such, such men are slaves, not of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he had talked about in Romans 6. They're slaves not of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their speech, and f- by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. Turn your Bibles to Titus 3. Titus 3, verse 9, beginning. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strifes and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man. After a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. Avoid these kind of disputes, Paul tells Timothy. Again, the point is... Sometimes more the people involved than the issues involved. For the emphasis, much of the emphasis, is on the factious man. A word that is used here um, in this passage, factious, it's used only here in the New Testament as an adjective. But it is used... As a noun in that text in Galatians 5 verse 20. 
about those who cause factions and those who cause division. Again, it is a work of the flesh. But the Bible says this faction man, factious man is to be rejected. The word, who, the word rejected is the same word translated in the New American Standard in 1 Timothy 4 verse 5, have nothing to do with. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 11, it is translated refuse. And it's translated refuse in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 23. Refuse, have nothing to do with, reject the factious man. Titus's work as a preacher of the gospel was too, bit, too important to spend all his time with people who just wanted to argue and did not want to change. And the Bible says, after you have warned him a first and second time, reject him. Reject him. And so... The Bible's pretty consistent in saying this is a profoundly serious sin. It is a profoundly serious sin, and the scoffer must be driven out. The factious must be rejected, an eye must be kept on those who cause divisions. Contrary to the teaching, that is not pleasant work, but that is God's work. That is God's work. There are several specifics. In the book of Proverbs, that are said to stir up strife. And Lord willing, next week, we will pursue those specifics. But I want you to also see that those passages that we looked at Romans 16, about people who teach things contrary to the doctrines you have been taught. Or Jesus' prayer in John 17, those who believe in me through their word. That we have a unity that is based upon God's Word is a unity based upon God's revelation and God's Word. And efforts to try to push us away from that Word are destructive no matter how many people Agree with them. In the fall of 2000, I had finished most of my schooling. I was taking a couple of classes at Lipscomb. 
I believe it was this teacher's first semester at the school. When I took John Mark Hicks' class on systematic theology, he is, he is a brilliant man. We had three-hour classes, and outside of a 10-minute break in between, he kept us on the edge of our seat the whole time. He was a, he's a brilliant man. He is a talented man. And he has written things, particularly in his book, Searching for the Pattern. It so stunned me. I wonder if there is any connection between that brilliant man and between this book. He had studied the scriptures. He had studied the original languages. He had a tremendous grasp of church history in general, restoration history in particular. And yet, in, in this book, he talks about looking at Scripture and saying that what was said in Scripture just didn't set right in his gut. You didn't need to study Hebrew and Greek. And the scriptures in church history to get that. You didn't need to study that. On one page that I particularly think is telling. Pages 88 and 89 of his book. He is talking again about what he knew he was reading in Scripture didn't match what he felt. And he said, I have always believed that God loved all people. God blessed Abraham in order to bless all nations. God loved Nineveh as well as Israel. God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus to redeem it. God is not willing that any should perish. God left a witness of his love for all people in the seasons and harvest and rain. And Jesus died for all. Christ died for us and Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Jesus loved his enemies from the cross when he prayed that God would forgive his executioners. Amen to every word of that. That's exactly true. And 
I have on this page here run off. He didn't specific give the scripture references for each of these. He didn't specifically give the scripture. But I have written them down. Everything he just said is totally biblical. But this is where he goes awry um, among other places. And this very seriously. I pause here to recall I also heard another picture of God at times. It was employed to motivate strict and precise obedience. Remember remember Nadab and Abihu was often heard in my circles. Leviticus 10. I want to pause there a second. As one who has taught Leviticus a dozen times, at least, I acknowledge when I was raised, and this may be my fault, And it may have been, as I tend to think, a weakness of brethren in that time to fail to give proper attention to the Old Testament. The only passage I remember growing up from Leviticus was Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. I mean, that was was it. That was the extent of my knowledge. And why these things about sacrifices? And and now I delight in them. But, But at the time, it was a closed book to me, and I didn't know anything about that. I never heard it referenced. But one of the things I found out, if you read Leviticus in context, that passage in Leviticus 10 becomes more meaningful and more powerful, not less powerful. Eight times in Leviticus 8, they did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. Three times in in Leviticus 9, they did just as the Lord commanded. Eleven times, the text has just said, they did all the Lord commanded. Then you have a case where they offered strange fire, which the Lord had not commanded, and came down from heaven and consumed them. In something that was written Thursday, there is a brother who at this moment is more influential than any other's. He has more people hanging on his word than any other. And nobody envies him. Because at 44, Matt Basford is dying of Lou Gehrig's disease. He wrote these words. 
thanks to my eye gaze tablet, I can read the Bible again. I intend to read Genesis to Revelation straight through because I want to finish before I die. I'm moving at a brisk clip. Recently, I read the book of Leviticus in two days. Critics of the blueprint hermeneutic love to mock the use by churches of Christ of the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. Why make such a big deal of this little random incident? He's putting those words into someone's mouth. In truth, the fire that came down from heaven and consumed Nadab and Abihu was no mere incident. It is the central event of the book of Leviticus. about treating God as holy. I am all for reading the Bible through the lens of the great themes, but holiness and careful, reverent obedience is surely one of those themes. When we minimize the importance of these things, we run the risk of failing to honor God before the people. May the Lord bless man. Now I want to go back to that paragraph I read earlier in John Hicks that I said amen to. And I want you to listen. God loved Nineveh as well as Israel. God loved the world that he sent Jesus to redeem. God is not willing that any should perish. God left a witness of love for all people in the seasons, in the harvest, and the rain. Jesus died for all people. While we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Jesus loved his enemies from the cross when we prayed that God would forgive his executioners. And again, amen to every word. If I didn't believe this, I wouldn't waste my time. If we didn't believe God wanted us, loved us and wanted us to be saved. But I'll tell you something else he does in that next paragraph. Not only does he use that past, th those passages in contrast to Nadab and Abihu, That is the only example he gives. Now, I want you to listen to me. I want to do what he just did with those pictures of the love of God. Those pictures are true. Those pictures are right. Those pictures are 100% correct. I'm going to do what he did with the love of God, with the holiness and wrath of God. And I know I've missed some. God is the God who sent the flood upon a wicked world in Genesis 6 through 9. God is the God who struck Ur and Onan in Genesis 38, verses 7 through 10. 
God's deliverances for his people often mean judgment for his enemies. The same God who delivered Israel at the Red Sea drowned the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. A fit punishment for them trying to throw the Hebrew boys in the river. The ten spies who brought back a bad report died instantly of a plague in Numbers 14, 37. When Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebelled against Moses, the ground opened up and swallowed them. And the 250 priests who offered incense, fire came down from heaven and consumed them in Numbers 16. When Saul inquired of the medium, the Lord took his life, 1 Chronicles 10, 13 and 14. When, da- when, when, when David had the ark moved improperly in 2 Samuel 6, the Lord struck Uzzah. When Gehazi, or Gehazi, the servant The servant of Elisha went to try to get a reward from Naaman. He was struck with leprosy. When Jonah went in the wrong direction, when God told him to go to Nineveh, God sent a great storm and Jonah was thrown overboard. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 were struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. And I believe in 1 Corinthians 11, some of you may disagree with this point, when some sleep because they took of the Lord's Supper improperly, that that could well mean that their lives were taken for that. That's the way the word sleep is used the other time in 1 Corinthians. Is that all there is to God? Is that as profound of a truth as the truth about the love of God? We're not to see God's holiness and wrath as in competition to his love. They're not in competition. It's the same God. It's the God of all Scripture. The same God who doesn't want anybody to be lost. The same God who gave his son knowing all that would happen and still he came. The same God who did that is the same God that will say on the day of judgment, depart from me for I do not know you, son. I had a teacher who said we cannot talk about the love of God and the holiness of God in isolation. We we can't do that. God's love is holy. God's holiness is shown in love. Don't put those in competition to each other. They are together. They are both truths that we must embrace. Teacher had written a 25, 30 page paper on that subject, which I think is somewhere in this building.
That teacher was John Mark Higgs. The profound truths that I learned from him so many years ago. He seems to have forsaken him. holiness of God and the love and grace of God are not in competition. They're both truths about this God. To emphasize either while ignoring the other will lead to our destruction. Lord willing, as we stated next week, see some things in the book of Proverbs that are said to stir up strife. Because God takes this extremely seriously. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we know you are holy. We know you are love. May we never forsake part of the Scripture that doesn't seem right to our God. But may we totally and fully humble ourselves before you. For Lord, we want to be in your presence, but we know you want that. more than we do and bring us safely to that day avoiding the pitfalls and minefields that life hurls our way in Jesus we pray amen I want to tell you and that there are no doubt many others but as further resources dealing with this book, there have been lessons done by a couple of friends of mine recently. If you would want to know where to find them, Jeff Wilson did one at a lectureship in Alabama last week, and a month or so ago, John Weaver did at Florida College. If you are concerned about these, this book, then I ask you, you feel free to ask me 
about that. Now, have you been basing what you want upon your feelings or his truth? Let me tell you what happens in the New Testament when people become Christians. They believe Jesus is the Son of God. They turn from their sins in repentance. They are baptized in Christ to have their sins washed away. That's what you see. And that's what we offer if you want to come as we stand and sing.